Let me open us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you uh, for the fact that you have given us uh, leaders in our past that have helped directed the church and, and protected the church. And uh, Father, we thank you for these men and pray that you would um, just give us insight into who they are and Lord, that we would even um, study them further and Lord, even learn lessons from their lives. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that, that you would be honored this morning in all that we say and do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I prepared for this week, I've uh, come to appreciate uh, the, the, primarily the two men. You can look on your notes. We're looking at two, two men this morning, Athanasius and Basil of Caesarea, uh, also known as Basil the Great. I knew a little bit about Athanasius, um, Basil I didn't know a ton about, um, but I really have come to appreciate uh, both of these men greatly, and it is my hope that uh, you will have a greater appreciation of them as a result of this morning as well, and even uh, maybe spur you on to more study or more um, just reading in, in what they wrote or, or what they did, because the definitely great men. Paul writes this in Philippians. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so the idea that Paul's telling the Philippian church is, look, look at key people, leaders who walk out, who demonstrate what the Christian life should be like and imitate them. And uh, so uh, these two men, Athanasius and Basil, of Caesarea are men that we can look to for that as well this morning. Um, so Athanasius of Alexandria, uh, I have dates here. He was born circa 296, and he died in 373. I've already mentioned him some um, in this series because he was such a key figure in combating uh, the Arian heresy. And uh, so he really played a significant role in in this section of church history. Um, one, of, one of the primary sources that I'm using is Gonzalez's The Story of Christianity. Uh, in book one, he writes this. He says, Among those who were present at the Council of Nicaea, there was a young man so dark and short that his enemies would later call him the Black Dwarf. Speaking of Athanasius. Um, his background is interesting. He was at the Council of Nicaea, but, but not as a bishop. He was a secretary or a deacon um, for Alexander uh, of Alexandria. And uh, it was nice of them to pick a bishop with the same name as the city. Um, so Alexander was the bishop. You'll remember he's the one that condemned Arius and excommunicated Arius uh, because Arius was in the city of Alexander. He was a presbyter. And uh, again, I won't go back into all this teaching. You'll have to go back to previous Sunday schools for all of this. But um, um, Athanasius was at the Council of Nicaea and uh, was, many believe, instrumental even in helping Alexander in formulating his position on, uh, specifically on the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't know much about where he was. Um, we don't know much about the place or the time of his birth. Notice the circa 296. 
Um, many speculate that he was Coptic uh, because of his dark complexion and the fact that he did speak Copt. Um, our, so he, Coptic, uh, the Copts were a group of people who lived in, uh, in Egypt. And uh, so he would not, if that's true, he would not have had a, um, um, a privileged lifestyle. He would have been one of the lower classes. Um, he had close contact with the monks in the desert. Uh, he writes that he used to visit uh, one of the monks called Paul the Hermit. Uh, on a frequent basis, and we're going to look at the exiles, because he was exiled five times, and, and in the exiles, a lot of times he would go out into the desert and stay with the monks, so he had a lot of contact with them. Uh, just a note on monasticism, uh, when Constantine really legalized Christianity and made it popular, the official Roman religion, several things happened. Many people, including Eusebius, the historian, uh, saw that as a really good thing. Um, and he thought that God had brought Constantine in and, uh, and put him on the throne of Rome so that Christianity could thrive and flourish. However, there was a different group of people who bemoaned the fact that, that Christianity was now the official religion. And what they saw was really this change in Christianity. The narrow gate that Jesus had preached now had become a broad gate, and many were coming into the church. Uh, the motives for why they were coming in were questioned by many people. Um, these people are coming in for prestige. They were coming in for position. Uh, even seeking uh, to become bishops for prestige and position um, because of the bishops had a close connection with the emperor. So many saw this as not really a good thing, and so one of the reactions was uh, you saw a lot of people turn to monasticism. Um, and you had in the church, even before this, there had always been an element um, in the church where uh, they sought after extreme asceticism and celibacy so that they could devote their lives to the Lord you know, purely. Um, but after, when you see the official religion becoming Christianity and you see this almost like what many people saw as the watering down of the church, whereas before the church is being persecuted, it cost you something to be a Christian. And so you had to be, you really had to be a believer to be in the church. Now, all of a sudden, the church is, it's popular to be a Christian. It's popular to be a bishop. And so the motives of people coming in, again, were being questioned. So a lot of people responded to this by seeking a more pure Christianity, and they did that through monasticism. Um, the word monk is derived from a Greek word, which means solitary, and the earliest monks were those who sought solitude uh, or an escape from society and just the activity and the noise, the distractions that you find in society. And so they, the early monks, were people who would go live in caves, and they would devote themselves to prayer and contemplation. Um, again, Athanasius had a connection with some of these monks, um, even visiting them. He, even as a young boy, he would sometimes visit them, and it said that Athanasius learned from the monks, a rigid discipline and austerity. Um, so his life was very disciplined, and he, um, very serious, very uh, focused on 
the kingdom of God and what that meant for him. And it said that even his enemies respected his way of life. What set Athanasius apart from his opponents, particularly uh, his Arian opponents, um, was not his ability to reason, was not his ability to speak, it wasn't his elegance. Um, it was really what one historian pointed out was the fact that he was a man of the people. Uh, Athanasius loved the people that he served. Uh, he was with the people. Uh, pro- probably a lot of that was due to his upbringing. Um, and people loved Athanasius because he was with the people. He was among the people. He lived among the people. He, he didn't see himself as set apart from the people. In fact, Gonzalez describes him this way. He says, um, goodness, I can never stay on top of my slides. Uh, and I even write really good notes here. Move to slide. Uh, Gonzalez describes him this way. His monastic discipline, his roots among the people, his fiery spirit, and his profound and unshakable conviction made him invincible. Um, those are the, that's the way he's described. Again, he was uh, a fiery, apparently little man uh, who was very serious about the things of the Lord and very firm in his convictions. Well, Alexander was appointed bishop of Alexandria after Alexander, did I say Alec? Athanasius, sorry, was appointed bishop of Alexandria after the death of Alexander. Um, and this was in 328. Uh, Athanasius was 33 years old, and he didn't really want to be the bishop of Alexander. Uh, so, but he became bishop, and again, just because of his love for the people, he had a, a tumultuous relationship. And I will go to my next slide now. He was exiled, I mentioned, five times. And, I mean, if you do the math, the majority of his uh, being a bishop was in exile. He was falsely accused uh, by some of the bishops who were Arians uh, as kidnapping another bishop named Arsenius and cutting off his hand, murdering him, cutting off his hand so that he could use his hand in magical incantations. That was the accusation. Uh, At his trial, um, his accusers produced a human hand as evidence. At that point, Athanasius brought in a man who was cloaked and, uh, and then revealed the head of the man, and it was Arsenius. Uh, First, he asked them if they knew who Arsenius was, and they said yes, and then he reveals the head, and it was Arsenius, Um, and they said, show us his hand, so he unveils one hand, and they said, no, not that one, (laughs) so he unveils the other hand, and Arsenius has both of his hands, and then uh, Athanasius said, what kind of a monster do you think Arsenius is, that he has three hands? Um, (laughs) And so uh, that was just sort of the everybody seemed to be against Athanasius because of his stand for Christ. Um, Later on, his first exile was due to Eusebius, uh, not the historian, uh, but one of Arius' followers. So Eusebius was very prominent and was actually a close friend of Constantine. 
In fact, Eusebius baptized Constantine right before Constantine died. So Eusebius is an, is an Arian, so he's opposed to Athanasius, and so he has, through his friendship with Constantine or his close relationship with Constantine, had, Constantine kind of wavered back and forth between Arianism and the Nicene Creed. And uh, so Eusebius uh, convinced Constantine that uh, Athanasius had boasted that he could stop shipments of wheat to Rome, and, and Constantine ended up exiling him. So that was his first exile. He was allowed to come back or restored in 338. And his second and third exiles, um, he, so Constantine then dies. One of his sons, Constantius II, uh, could, again, Eusebius convinced him that Athanasius was a threat and should be gotten rid of, and so he exiles him. The third exile happened under, uh, under in, th- in 356 um, under Constantius. Some of these names are hard. Um, Constantius, again, sent Roman soldiers, uh, I think the number was 5,000, if I remember correctly, to a church service in Alexandria. and They were having a communion service, and uh, Athanasius was presiding over it. The, uh, the people would not let the soldiers in, and at one point Athanasius refused to leave because he wanted to make sure his congregation was safe, and he encouraged them just to leave. They ended up slowly leaving the the church as the Roman guards were coming in to take Athanasius, Uh, but at the last minute, um, Athanasius apparently fainted or passed out, and some of the deacons grabbed him and and got him out of the church, but they eventually got him and, and exiled him again. Uh, the fourth exile was under the emperor Julian, uh, and Julian was attempting to bring Rome back under paganism. He saw Christianity as the problem with Rome, and so he wanted to bring back paganism, and he, uh, of course, Athanasius was a strong opponent of that, and so Julian banished him. The fifth exile was under the emperor Valens. He evicted Athanasius uh, simply because Julian had um, and so Athanasius was uh, a man who was a, really against a lot of the bishops and the leaders in the church because of their uh, leanings toward Arianism, but he was also uh, in opposition to many of the emperors. Um, I wanted to give you a quote. John Piper had this quote about Athanasius in his book, Contending for Our All. He says, Thank you, Athanasius. Thank you. For a lifetime of exile and suffering for the glory of Christ. Thank you for not backing down when you were almost alone. Thank you for seeing the truth so clearly and for standing firm. You were a gift of God to the church and the world. And I think that's right. Athanasius really stood. And he really saw things clearly. I think that's what's remarkable about Athanasius. Um, A lot of people would have said... Come on, Athanasius, what are, what are we arguing about here? We're arguing about uh, semantics. And Athanasius saw the clear implications of what it meant if we, if we refused to acknowledge the deity of Christ clearly. Um, so he really saw the truth very clearly, and he stood firm on it. And, and we can thank God for men like Athanasius. Um, 
So really, the, and now I'm on the significance, um, and, and I left your notes in, uh, intentionally kind of blank just so you could kind of write down whatever was interesting to you. Uh, the person of Christ is the first significance that we see with Athanasius. The person of Christ has everything to do for Athanasius with the work of Christ, and that's why he, he stood so firm on this. He really saw the incarnation of Christ as the supreme importance in the doctrine of Christ. And so Christ is fully God and fully man. It's the incarnation. Uh, for him, the Arian controversy was not merely about theological subtleties. It was about the very core of Christianity and the core of the gospel. And you see this in one of his most powerful contributions was his uh, book called On the Incarnation. In this work, he argues that if Christ was not fully God, as Arius asserted, it would have been impossible for God to redeem humanity. The implications of what Arius was teaching... Uh, by the way, throughout Alexandria, before the Council of Nicaea, Arius and his followers would, would go walk through the seat, streets of Alexandria chanting, there was a time when he was not. In other words, Christ was created by God. Sure, he was created before all other creation, but he was created by God. Well, Athanasius saw that or heard that and said, no, no, no. If that's true, then our redemption is meaningless. If Christ is not God, it's impossible for a, a creature to redeem another creature. And so he stood firm on the fact that Christ was fully God. Secondly, the second implication that we see is that if Christ is not fully God, according, and this is what uh, Athanasius points out in, on the incarnation, the church is guilty of idolatry. Because all through church history, Christ is exalted, he's prayed to, he's worshipped, and Christ never once corrected anyone who recognized him as God or worshipped him. And so if Christ is not fully God, if he is a creature, then, then the church is committing idolatry by worshipping him. And so with those two things really clearly in Athanasius' mind, he stands firm uh, really, there's a quote from Stephen Nichols. He's a, he's a church historian. He says, Athanasius wrangled with the best minds of his day and endured persecution at the hands of the most powerful politicians of the day, all for the sake of the gospel. Athanasius is a man who stood for the truth. Um, and I think there's a, a couple of lessons we can learn from Athanasius. I think first and foremost... Uh, at times, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, faithful to the truth of the gospel, we're going to be unpopular. Now, Athanasius, uh, so a a Athanasius, how many of y'all have heard of uh, Athanasius Contramundum uh, against the world? And that's really, Athanasius really stood at a time when it seemed like the whole world was against him. At times, he stood when the, even those in the church were against him, but, but all of the leaders in, all the political leaders, the rulers, the emperors were against him. Um, in fact, you can see from the exiles, pretty much every emperor in Rome that he served under 
exiled him at one point. So he stood firm uh, against, really, when everyone was, seemed to be against him. So uh, first lesson that I, that I have, that observation that I made was uh, being faithful means you'll be unpopular. Secondly, superficial unity is a false unity. Um, Athanasius saw the fact that we can't just be unified for the sake of unity, that all true unity has to be founded on clear doctrinal statements. Uh, true unity um, has to have as its foundation doctrine, truth. Okay, that's Athanasius. Secondly, Basil of Caesarea. Uh, <clears throat> we know more about Basil than we do, at least his early life, than we do about Athanasius. Um, Bathanasius, <laughs> Basil was one of the three men who were known as the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, he's the, and I'm kind of focusing on here on him. Uh, an, an interesting look uh, study would be the Cappadocian fathers, all three of them. Um, Basil of Caesarea was one. Gregory of of Nyssa. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. That's Basil's brother. And then Gregory uh, of Nazianzus, um, they were known as the Cappadocian Fathers. They were really instrumental in fighting the cause of the Nicene Creed. Um, and, and in particular, we're going to look at Basil's contribution, which was a little bit slightly different than Athanasius, uh, but still he stood firm for the Nicene Creed. Uh, they were the Cappadocian Fathers because they were, and I think I have the map here. This is the one you can't see very well. Let me see. Oh, it doesn't show. Um, if you look right over here, you can see Cappadocia. It's, it's sort of up this, in the yellow part in that area over there. Um, it was interesting. Somebody mentioned First uh, Peter this morning, uh, and it, it reminded me. Uh, Peter writes uh, in the beginning of First Peter: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, this is what is modern-day Turkey, uh, but the, all three of them were were bishops there. And they were instrumental in reclaiming many who had been impacted by Arianism. Um, and that which continued to spread even after the Council of Nicaea. Primarily because of the influence that Arians had on Constantine. So, um, the life of Basil. Basil, sorry. Uh, Basil was born around the year 330 in the city of Caesarea. Uh, which was then the capital of Cappadocia. His family had deep roots in Christianity. Both his maternal and paternal grandparents suffered uh, under the persecution of Diocletian. Y'all remember that from the very first history series we did. Uh, one of the most brutal uh, persecutions that the church, church faced was under Diocletian. In fact, his maternal grandfather was martyred. And his paternal grandparents were both, both went and lived uh, outside the city in, in, in some woods, basically fleeing persecution. He was well-educated. 
and even though his family, all of their property had been taken under Diocletian, they had uh, managed to accumulate property. He, he was well-educated. His family had resources. Uh, he even studied rhetoric at Athens and became a teacher of rhetoric. Uh, what's interesting, though, is even in his studies of rhetoric, he struggled. Um, classical rhetoric really puts an interest, uh, an emphasis, not an interest, uh, on rhetorical display. And so he really struggled with that. In other words, uh, to be persuasive, you have to be eloquent. Um, and he would write in a letter to a friend, he writes this, that a simple and unlabored style befits the purpose of a Christian who writes not so much for display as for general edification. So you can see this man who's really studied in rhetoric under the classical philosophy of rhetoric um, really saw clearly that you, as a Christian, you have to be careful how you communicate. He was converted in or around the year 357. Uh, I don't think... Yes, I have this quote. He writes this, talking about his conversion. I wasted nearly all of my youth in the vain labor that occupied me in the acquisition of teachings of that wisdom which God has made foolish. Then at last... As if roused uh, from a deep sleep, I looked at the wonderful light of the truth of the gospel, and I perceived the worthlessness of the wisdom of the rulers of this age, who were doomed to destruction. After I had mourned deeply for my miserable life, I prayed that guidance be given to me for my uh, introduction into the precepts of, of piety. Like many others of his day, Basil uh, became a monk, <clears throat> but this is the interesting, one of the contributions that, uh, and I keep calling Basil, it's Basil. Uh, one of the contributions that Basil makes is to the monastic movement. So he visited, uh, like Athanasius, the, the monks who were living in caves, and he really saw some problems with the solitary uh, monastic movement. Um, and so what his contribution to monasticism was he felt like as a monk he needed to live in a community. Um, in fact, he writes this, uh, and, and, and notice his, his, the way he, he phrases this. He says, how will he, in his monastic rules, he writes this, how will he show his humility if there is no one with whom he may compare and so confirm his own greater humility. How will he give evidence of his compassion if he has cut himself off from association with other persons? And how will he exercise himself in long-suffering if no one contradicts his wishes? And so he looked at the solitary monastic movement and realized you can't live out your Christian faith in isolation. And so he advocated a communal monastic lifestyle. He also suffered from various health problems. By the way, he did have some means because of his family. He had some, some wealth, and he used all of his money to start um, what would have been like hospitals and places for people to live who didn't have anywhere else to go. So he was very committed to helping other people. 
uh, back to my point I started and then interrupted myself, he suffered from various health problems, one of which was what he called a liver complaint. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is, but he does talk about some of the illnesses he struggled with. In around 374, he writes that he ran a fever for 50 days. In the following year, he mentioned he had more fevers, diarrhea, and bowel, bowel problems. Um, so he was not a picture of health, uh, somewhat frail physically, um, yet he could still say, and I put this quote on here because it's remarkable to me, he could still say, as long as we draw breath, we have the responsibility of leaving nothing undone for the edification of the churches of Christ. That's so remarkable for a man who's suffering so greatly with physical ailments. Uh, and and I, I know just even as I was reading this and thinking about this, um, just thinking about the body at Calvary and many people sitting in this room who are struggling physically and yet continue to pour their lives out for the church and for Christ. Um, it's very commendable, and I won't mention any names because I know they wouldn't want me to do that. Uh, but uh, Basil was definitely a man who lived to serve other people, even when he was struggling. He became bishop of Caesarea in 370, um, and his significance is this. Uh, he, his thinking, and you'll, you've probably already picked up on this based on what I was talking about earlier, what I mentioned earlier, he really emphasized humility. For Basil, his thinking about Christianity, humility was fundamental. Because he, and if you'll turn, actually you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 was really fundamental for Basil. Um, sorry, I'm going the wrong way. I can't think and talk and do something at the same time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, Paul writes, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. And that was fundamental in Basil's thinking. Everything we have is a gift of God. All of our abilities um, are gifts of God. We contribute nothing. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. Therefore, pride has no place in the Christian life. Um, he wrote a homily entitled of humility, um, and he basically has talks about humility. I'm uh, just going to give you a glimpse of some of this. Um, this is one of the things he writes there. The surest salvation for him, the remedy of all ills, and, and he's talking about mankind here. In context, he's, uh, and I took, where I took this quote, in context he's talking about uh, the fall of man and how man can uh, be redeemed by God. He says, the surest salvation for him, the remedy of his ills, the means of restoration to his original state uh, is in practicing humility and not pretending that he may lay claim to any glory through his own efforts, but seeking it from God. In other words, what he's saying is the only way you can come to God is through humility. When you recognize that you have nothing to offer God, 
that everything you have, in essence, is a gift from Him, then, and only then, can you be saved. Can you come to, to God through Christ? Um, yeah, he talks about becoming a Christian as an intrinsically humbling experience. Uh, he also writes this, But what is true glory and what makes a man great? In this, says the prophet, let him glory or boast. Boast that he understands and knows that I am the Lord, he quotes Jeremiah 9, 24. This constitutes the highest dignity of man. This is his glory and greatness. Truly to know what is great and to cleave to it and to seek after glory from the Lord of glory. The apostle tells us, he that glories may glory in the Lord saying, Christ was made for us wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is written, he that glories may glory in the Lord. Again, our boast should be in the Lord, not in ourselves. Now this, I'm continuing the quote, is the perfect and consummate glory in God, not to exult in one's own righteousness, but recognizing oneself as lacking true righteousness to be justified by faith in Christ alone. Humility is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, and it is the way we become a Christian, because God humbles us. Uh, and and you, all of this kind of fits together when you, when you understand the role of the Spirit for Basil, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but let me just give you a little bit on this now. How does one grow in humility? Well, according to Basil, Basil, uh, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces humility in a believer. Uh, but he does give this advice, how you can grow in humility, uh, by, primarily by meditating on the life of Christ. So he saw Christ as the, the perfect paradigm of humility. And so when we meditate on the life of Christ... Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, manifests humility in our lives. And uh, really, the verse that he talks about um, is, and you're familiar with this, but I want to read it for you, Matthew 11. Verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This was a key verse for Basil, uh, the fact that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is lowly in heart, is humble in heart. Um, and so he, his advice to believers... I don't have this. He says this, your manner of speaking, and listen, this is, this is great. Your manner of speaking and singing, your conversation with your neighbor also should aim at modesty rather than pretentiousness. Do not strive, I beg you, for artificial embellishment in speech, for sweetness in song, or for a high-flown style in, in conversation. In all your actions, and I have this quote, in all your actions, be free from pomposity. I said that wrong. How do you say that? Pomposity. 
yeah, pomposity. Um, be obliging to your friends, gentle toward your slaves, forbearing with the forward, benign to the, slow, to the lowly, a source of comfort to those afflicted, a friend to the distressed, a condemner of no one, speak not in your own praise, nor contrive that others do so. Uh, humility was key in his thinking and his approach to Christianity. Secondly, his significance is in his defense of the orthodox view of the Son of God, but in particular, or of the Trinity by, with the Nicene Creed, but in particular, his focus was on the Holy Spirit. Uh, after Athanasius' death in 373, Basil inherited his mantle of defender of the Nicene Creed. Uh, however, Athanasius' focus was primarily on the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Basil uh, combated those who denied that the Spirit was fully God. Um, we've already seen that he emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit in producing holiness in the believer. Uh, in, in a statement of faith. Uh, so he, he combated uh, those who, who denied the, that the Holy Spirit was God. And one of the men he really debated with, he actually con convinced at one point that the Holy Spirit was in fact uh, God and brought this man to a point to where he was going to sign a statement of faith. And, and the statement of faith said this, uh, we must anathematize those who call the Holy Spirit a creature, those who think so, and those who do not confess that he is holy by nature, as the Father and the Son are holy by nature, but who regard him as alien to the divine and blessed nature. A proof of orthodox doctrine is the refusal to separate him from the Father and the Son. And that's really what they would do. And, and even, even the Arians would separate the Son from the Father, uh, and so it was a subtle thing, but they wouldn't refer to Jesus Christ. And then, especially those even who would recognize Christ as God, wouldn't refer to the Holy Spirit as God. Um, for we must be baptized as we have received the words, and we must be, and we must believe as we are baptized, and we must give honor as we have believed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to withdraw from communion those who call the Spirit a creature, since they are clearly blasphemers. And so he brought this man to sign. He actually signed this statement of faith, uh, but then he was convinced by other people that, um, that Basil was not right on this, and so he wavered too. Uh, Basil's, one of his most important contributions as far as books go, were, was a, uh, and this is really what, what one historian says, this is the, one of the most important books in the entire patristic period, and it's called Only Holy Spirit, published in 375. In the first eight chapters of this book, the first eight chapters, Basil demonstrates why Christians believed in the deity of Christ. Again, that wasn't his focus, uh, uh, but, but much of his work is devoted to that. The remaining 19 chapters, however, is devoted to demonstrating from Scripture why the Holy Spirit is God also and equally glorified with the Father and the Son. And really what's key to his argument, as you can kind of see from the quote I read earlier, is the Baptistic formula in Matthew 28, 19. 
It's really central to his argument. If we're baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, all three would be evident as being God. Um, that's Basil. Um, and the, again, I just want to remind you, uh, the last slide actually um, reminds you of this quote. As long as we draw breath, we have the responsibility of leading, leaving nothing undone for the edification of the churches of Christ. Um, so, any questions on Basil or Athanasius? I'll do my best to answer. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, it's on the Holy Spirit. He wrote a lot of homilies as well. Uh, the one I ref referenced earlier was of humility. Uh, hopefully you can see uh, God has really blessed the church with great men who have not only stood for the truth, but also lived out the truth. And I think we see that both in Athanasius and in Basil. Um, men who not only, especially I was so convicted by uh, Basil's life and his stand for truth, but just in his commitment to humility uh, is, is really remarkable um, in his stand for the church and his love for the church and for the people of the body of Christ. Um, and so hopefully, uh, just to give you guys a glimpse of, of how we should be challenged by those who went before us and emulate their faith. Well, let me make a few, let me close in prayer then a couple of announcements. Father, we do thank you uh, for men like Athanasius and Basil, and we pray that you would um, uh, help us to stand firm, uh, even when the tides of culture seem to be um, heading in our direction. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that you would help us as the church to defend your truth and stand for your truth in a humble and gentle way. Uh, Lord, may we uh, not back down in fear of, of, of being reproached by the world, but Lord, may we stand firm. Lord, thank you for men like this, and, and Lord, may we um, uh, imitate their example. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.